Hello and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns, nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Swiner, and social worker extraordinaire, Saima Khan, week by Dr. Jess Pierce. We're also going to flip the script a little bit and put Saima in the hot seat, as well as discuss safety assessments and safety planning. Thank you, Dr. Pierce and Saima, for joining us for this discussion. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to being in that hot seat. For those of you that did not tune in last week, Dr. Pierce received her bachelor's degree in creative writing from John Hopkins University her master's degree in medical anthropology from University College London, and her MD at the University of Colorado. She completed an internship in general pediatric at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, psychiatry residency at the University of Washington in Seattle, and a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Pierce's clinical interests include medically complex children, eating disorders, anxiety disorders, and trauma-informed care. She is active in medical education and advocacy focused on the child welfare system and asylum refugee care. As you may recall, Saima Khan received her Master's of Social Work from the University of Michigan School of Social Work with a focus on interpersonal practice in children, youth, and families. Saima also holds a Master's of Public Health from the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Saima is the lead social worker of the Child Psychiatry Hospital section and a clinical social worker on the Pediatric Consultation and Liaison Psychiatry Service. She has extensive experience in hospital-based psychiatric services, including consult, inpatient, and emergency services. Saima's area of clinical practice includes working with children with complex medical, psychiatric, and neurodevelopmental concerns, mental health systems, and safety planning. She has been involved in developing hospital policies pertaining to patient and staff safety, educational training for non-psychiatric faculty and staff, as well as improving care of children and adolescents with developmental disabilities. Saima also serves as co-implementation lead for the Department of Psychiatry Diversity, Equity, and Inclusions Committee. In this role, she works with the psychiatry lead and the Office of Health Equity and Inclusion to promote DEI efforts within psychiatry and Michigan medicine. None of our speakers today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures to share. Dr. Pierce, can you walk us through what a safety assessment is and what needs to be included in a safety assessment? Yeah, happily. Um, I think the first thing I want to say is that predicting who will attempt or die by suicide is really difficult. And um, it's not an exact science. But we do know that there are several dimensions that we want to consider each time uh, when assessing a person's safety risk, especially in an acute setting like the emergency department or in a medical clinic. And so what we're looking at are what we call red flags, risk factors that we know from um, research, evidence, and clinical practice increase the likelihood that someone may attempt suicide, which is what we're trying to prevent. Um, so we look at risk factors, and that includes both static risk factors, things that we cannot change. Like, for example, the patient uh, was exposed to substances in utero. It's not something we can change. The patient experienced trauma when they were younger. Um, the patient has a history of a suicide attempt. Those are all things that, that cannot be modified. 
Um, and then there are modifiable risk factors that we want to look at. Does the person have an active psychiatric condition that is undertreated or untreated? Does the person have ongoing substance use? Is the person in an unsafe environment? Are there modifiable risk factors that we can identify and intervene on? Um, and then the the opposite is also true. We want to look at what are protective factors that this patient may have that might um, prevent suicide or keep them from acting on their suicidal thoughts. So protective factors may include things like a supportive family or having providers already in place, um, having goals for the future, being engaged in community activities, things like that. And then the second half of the safety assessment is understanding these risk and protective factors what sorts of things do we need to identify to put into place to help the person with these thoughts? So what are the precipitating factors for those thoughts and what sort of um, interventions might we implement either at the family or community or hospital level to help um, prevent them from following through? Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Pierce. And just to kind of build on what was already shared, a safety assessment is a process of exploring suicidal thoughts, identifying risk and protective factors, and then making a plan of what we're going to do next. Um, a tool that I like or I appreciate to kind of provide some guidance on this was developed by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services called SAFET, or SAFETI, um, which provides guidance on safety assessments and management. Management. Um, so it goes through many of the things that Dr. Pierce talked about, you know, identifying risk factors, um, enhancing protective factors, and then kind of providing that suicide inquiry or kind of what are the things that are going on, and then thinking about what level of care someone needs and what do we need to do to help them be safe. Within safety planning, I also like to think of like an acronym that I find really helpful. Um, it's Is Path Warm? And that was developed by the American Association of Suicidology, and it explores factors like ideation, substance abuse purposelessness, anger, feeling trapped, hopelessness, uh, withdrawal, anxiety, recklessness, and mood changes. And so those are things that we know can be risk factors for suicide. So again, the things that Dr. Pierce identified, you know, trying to label those behaviors within certain categories to help us understand and really kind of create a conceptualization of whether this person, you know, will attempt suicide or not. And a safety assessment is really that moment in time, and it can change based on factors in a person's life. Um, so we know that it's always changing. And so a person may feel safe today and something happens and they may not feel safe tomorrow. As frontline mental health providers, we have seen a significant increase in the patients presenting to our ERs uh, with suicidal ideation, self-injurious behaviors, and suicide attempts. I think we can all attest to this as those frontline workers. Unfortunately, we have also started to see younger and younger patients experiencing these things. In fact, a study released out of clinical toxicology in March of 2022 showed that all pediatric groups have experienced an increase in suspected suicides, with the largest jump occurring in children between the ages of 10 and 12, with more than a 109% increase between the years of 2015 and 2020 with the two most common medications ingested being ibuprofen and acetaminophen. Dr. Pierce, as you know, this younger population can be particularly more difficult to assess for suicidality and often makes many providers nervous. How do you assess a younger child or a pre-adolescent for suicidal ideation intent and risk? Yeah, thanks, Christine. I, I think that's a really great question. And indeed, a lot of providers feel uncomfortable with this age group. And I, I think a couple of things to keep in mind when you go into an assessment in this age group. One is 
you know, don't assume that just because they're young, they can't be um, lethal. And, you know, we these statistics sadly underscore that, that children do um, die by suicide at, at young ages. And so we have to be sure that we're not thinking, well, they're they're seven or eight, they, they couldn't possibly succeed in, in, in acting their thoughts. Um, and secondly, it's not really so different from adolescence is we want to talk openly with kids about what they're thinking, um, but the vocabulary might be different. And I think also having a parent there may be really crucial, if not imperative, um, because it, you know certainly if you have a young child, you might want to be present for conversations like that with a provider. Um, so just some things to keep in mind. Um, but Assessing what does the child actually understand about death is really important, um, and that depends on their developmental age. Um, there may be five-year-olds who really don't understand that once someone dies, that's that's the end uh, of their you know living body, and you don't come back from that. Um, there may be nine-year-olds who don't understand that, and there may be five-year-olds who have a really great understanding of what death means. And so really getting a sense of that, I think, is an important first step. And then also understanding that kids have misconceptions about what may and may not be harmful. And so sometimes a young kid may take four Tylenol because the prescribed amount is two, and they think that four is going to be a lethal amount. And therefore, taking four is a legitimate suicide attempt in a child who thinks that taking four pills is going to end their life. And so sometimes I think providers make the mistake of saying, well, you know, they barely took over the recommended amount. That's not what matters. What matters is what was the intent and what did the child think would happen after they took whatever they took. So those are some things I think to keep in mind as you start the conversation. Definitely. I think that discussion about the concept of death is important, right? Because we know as child psychiatrists that six to eight years old is when that really starts to be cemented in the idea of finality. Um, what is death? What happens to your body? You know, that's something that's kind of you know, not well understood as in young children, but de depending on their developmental age, it could really sort of vary on, in in what that means. And as an emergency psychiatrist, somebody who who does a lot of these assessments, we are seeing younger and younger children come in using the terminology, using the the you know, I want to kill myself, I'm suicidal. You know, there's a lot of exposure now to these terms, and you know, one of the first things to do in that situation is not to allow yourself to be so alarmed that you you know forget the idea that you have to really assess what does this child understand about death and finality and and what you know what is their definition of suicide a lot of times you'll find that particularly in younger children it's really an expression of frustration and it ends up being that you know they're really asking for help they are trying to you know, find a way to express themselves. And oftentimes, you know, children are smart. They realize that using a phrase like that will help them get the attention of the people that, you know, they need to support them. So you really do have to sort of pause and look into, you know, the deeper questions of what does this child think when they say this, this comment. And there's actually, from a research perspective, there's a call out from the National Institute of Mental Health right now about 
creating research projects to help understand suicidal thoughts and behaviors in young children. So, you know, children under the age of 12. We've got more and more research, um, some spearheaded, you know, here by Dr. Cheryl King at the University of Michigan that really looks into suicidality in the adolescent stage. But there's a lot of mystery about what happens below the age of 12 and how does a child conceptualize this. And it's a very difficult concept to study. Um, You know, there's a lot of fear too about, you know, how do you talk about this with a child? But like we learned in our last episode from Dr. Pierce, sometimes, you know, being open-minded, exploratory with someone, you know, curious and, and sort of asking lots of questions and showing support to the child will kind of help you understand where they are with this statement of suicidality. I think linked to that, oftentimes we don't see, you know, more pervasive or significant mental health symptoms either from that younger population. And so that's often also challenging. We know that suicidality isn't linked specifically to any one specific mental health diagnosis, and it overlaps with many different diagnoses, but it can be more challenging you know, with younger populations because they may not be endorsing symptoms of depression or anxiety. And so many of the things that we utilize to assess risk are challenging because things don't align with that population. So there is a big need. And are there any thoughts about mental health diagnoses with that younger population and how it's linked to suicidal ideation? I think... What Dr. Pierce and I learn a lot about and uh, in medical training and you as well, Christina, with this population um, from an evaluation standpoint is that it's quite common to have an atypical presentation in a child of, you know, depression or anxiety like, like Simon was referring to. You may not see a sad, tearful child. You may see an irritable, angry, frustrated child. And, you know, there there are different things that you would look out for to kind of help us signal that something is not right, um, you know, so that this child is suffering or having difficulties in some way. So, um, yeah, there is a, a sort of a different view, a different lens that sometimes you have to use with this population in order to capture um, you know, distress and and find kids who are in need of extra mental health services. And I think in thinking a little bit more about that in these younger kids, I feel like they are crying out for help, maybe not in the most appropriate way, but something else is going on. They've experienced a trauma or parents are getting divorced or they're being bullied at school and it may not be a underlying depression or anxiety, but something else is going on and they just don't know how to ask for that help. And it comes out as self-harm or saying they want to die or something along those lines. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, And to your point earlier, Dr. Burns, I think context is super important in this age group. And I don't want to put a statistic on it because I'd be making it up. But I think a lot of the time when we're interviewing these younger kids, you hear the story, you know, they were upset about something. There was an argument. Something was taken away. They were being disciplined. Something happened. And emotions escalated. And then the child yelled, well, I'm just going to kill myself. And that's maybe a different situation than a kid who very calmly, you know, and in a, a moment of despair is talking about this, there's there's no hope for me, I, I'm just, I might as well die. And so context for everyone is important, but I think especially in these younger kids where it really might be an expression of frustration or it might be a call for attention. You don't want to assume that it is, but understanding what was the situation and what was the context is, is really important. I think there's also a link between some impulsivity 
and suicidal behavior. And I think across different age ranges, oftentimes people do report that when they made a suicide attempt, it was very impulsive. They were feeling bad in a moment. So I think it doesn't mean to dismiss the risk either, you know, of a, of a young child that may be acting out because of a consequence or a punishment, um, that they may still do something impulsive to harm themselves. And so it's really important to be thinking about safety planning. And again, if there's any statements about suicide, of how do we support someone with those thoughts? Definitely. I think sometimes, uh, I know I have it sort of drilled into my my mind that, you know, we as a society have decided that, you know, 18 or 21 is really the age when we sort of say you're an adult, you know, you have responsibilities. But from a neurobiological standpoint, mid to late 20s is really when your brain has fully developed. So concepts like, you know, the the issue of impulsivity is really something that is going to still sort of be at play, you know, and, you know, I try to look at, at patients through that lens of, you know, their brain is not fully developed yet. They are going to have this potential risk. And, you know, impulsivity is a big risk factor. And especially if you have a co-occurring disorder like ADHD, that's going to raise your risk for having impulsivity even more. Um, you know, these are sort of things that you include in that risk assessment that you're doing for suicide. And, you know, these are the things that make it a little bit more risky for children and adolescents and young adults as well. And that's why we see such high um, rates of suicide in these populations. Thinking about the younger kids and thinking about the discussion of, of what is death and the finality of death, I think one thing that's important to explore is are there any recent losses of people important to that child? Because I can think of many kids I've evaluated in the ED, particularly eight and under, who maybe recently they lost a, a grandparent or they lost an aunt or uncle or a parent, and somewhere in their mind they feel like, well, if I die, I'll be with them again. And you know, you don't want to undermine anyone's spiritual beliefs, but you also want to be very sure that you and that child understand what they're talking about and whether that really means suicidal thoughts or, you know, I miss grandma and I need a different outlet and make sure the parents understand that. But I think asking about recent losses, especially for younger kids, is an important element of the assessment because otherwise you may not know that that's what's driving what they're what they're disclosing. And I think a kind of a final note on the assessment of of younger children and pre-adolescents is that, you know, children are never a, a silo. There's always the parents or the guardians or someone around them. And so a lot of the assessments that we do as a as a mental health team have to do with, you know, including the entire group around the child, looking at the collateral information. So you should always be interviewing patients as well as their caretakers to gain that understanding of context and um, to help you to sort of decide the risks that this child has. And then, you know, thinking about moving forward into safety planning, the inclusion of their care team around them, their their providers is also important in allowing us to, to actually make a safety plan. So why don't we shift gears and talk a little bit about you know, what is a safety plan? What should it include? And who all should we be talking to? A safety plan is a really important tool that we use in mental health to concretely talk through suicidal thoughts and what a person can do at home or in the community when they experience suicidal thoughts. Um, so when I'm safety planning, um, or when any of us are safety planning, really, we're exploring whether someone is able to be confident in their own ability to maintain their safety and utilize supports to not act on those thoughts to harm themselves. 
And the most commonly used model for a safety plan was developed by Barbara Stanley and Gregory Brown and was built on research um, focusing on promoting protective factors and reducing risk factors that a patient may be experiencing. A good safety plan is usually includes um, a person walking through the warning signs that they may be um, experiencing a crisis, employing internal coping strategies, utilizing social contacts um, as a way to distract yourself from thoughts, um, and then family members or friends that they feel like they could contact during a crisis, information about crisis resources and phone numbers that they can utilize, as well as talking about restricting access to lethal means. When walking through a safety plan, we want to be concrete and help the person reflect on the crisis. And if they're in the ER, what were the factors that led them to present to the ER? Kind of what led to the crisis? Things that we've moved away from are safety contracts or agreements that a person will be safe at home as they really don't provide concrete guidance to a person. And we found that it really wasn't an effective way of helping people be safe. Simon, do you think you could give us um, some examples of what warning signs people may put on their safety plans or what coping skills they may identify help them in moments of crisis? Yeah, definitely. So I think we want to focus on both like thoughts that a person may have, some of their behavioral changes, some of the cognitions or the emotions that they may experience um, during a crisis. So I like to kind of walk them back and think about were there specific thoughts that were getting stuck in your head? So sometimes people feel like, you know, I just kept having this thought that I'm, I'm worthless, you know, no one loves me, no one cares about me. So kind of calling that to like the front of their mind to say, hey, when you have that thought, that means that we're approaching a crisis and you need to find someone to support you, um, or kind of helping support them too of, of challenging that thought to redirect them and say, there's lots of people that care about you. And, you know, this is part of your depression and part of the suicidal thoughts. Um, sometimes it's, it's kind of exploring, like, do you notice that you're isolating yourself more? You're spending more time in bed or you're scrolling TikTok more often than you normally would. And, and you're kind of getting stuck in that pattern. So it's, it's helping them walk through things that they're noticing are changes occurring. Um, and being able to intervene early so they're not at that point of a 10 where it's, it's a crisis, they don't know what to do, what can we do early in that situation. And then coping skills are, are kind of some of the things that we've talked about, so ways that they can distract themselves. Um, so taking a walk, journaling, using Play-Doh, you know, something, smelling a candle, like again, just something that's going to provide them some kind of diversionary interaction in that situation. Yeah, I, I think that's all really important information. And, you know, when I'm talking to kids and parents, and especially teenagers and parents, doing a safety plan, one of the things I always ask the child is, what would be helpful in the moment for mom or dad to say? And what would be unhelpful? Because a lot of times parents don't know. And it gives the child the opportunity to say, you know, it really doesn't help me when you do X. And maybe the parent didn't know that. And so opening up that dialogue is really important. The other thing is, especially for older teenagers who maybe have been to the ER a couple of times or have been in psychiatric hospitals before, I think sometimes they worry that if I disclose my suicidal thoughts, I'm going to be hospitalized. And so I like to have that conversation really openly with the kid and the parent and say, you know, just because you're having suicidal thoughts does not mean you're immediately going to be rushed to the emergency room and admitted. Maybe that's what's needed, but there are a bunch of steps in between, and that's what our safety plan is here to provide so that they don't, you know, what we don't want to have them do is just shut down and not disclose thoughts because they're afraid it's going to be an automatic hospitalization. And so I often will talk about that really transparently with, with the child and the parent so that they understand that. 
Yeah, I like to think of the safety plan as that early intervention, right? So if we can implement a good safety plan, that's going to hopefully keep you from needing to come to the ER. But, you know, sometimes that is what's needed. But what can we do early? And I think engaging families is a really important piece of that. I think you guys both alluded to something is that when kids disclose suicidal ideation, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're being psychiatrically hospitalized. What are some of those other things that we can do to help mitigate risk and address some of these thoughts, maybe out in the community or within the family setting? So there's lots of things that we can do to help support. So I think you know one of the most important things is after someone presents to the ER for suicidal thoughts, finding a way to kind of continue engaging them on that topic. So again, contacting their care team, seeing if you can get an emergency appointment with their therapist to be able to check in a little bit more often, um, finding ways for the the child and the family to communicate. So as Dr. Pierce mentioned, you know, what is helpful, what isn't helpful, and what are the things your parents can ask, you know, on a daily basis to kind of know how you're doing. Um, And sometimes kids come up with code words, you know, they pass a journal back and forth or they text, um, but some way that you're going to be checking in about those suicidal thoughts after you leave the emergency room. Sometimes we recommend a higher level of care. So we've talked about partial hospitalization programs. So thinking about being in a day treatment, so you're going Monday through Friday, you're getting some more intensive um, therapy support, there's a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner, physician assistant that can provide uh, medication management, um, and a space to just talk about what's going on and build those tools. And sometimes, you know, if it is a crisis and the child cannot be safe or the parent is worried about, you know, their ability to support their um, child, then they may need to be in the hospital for some period of time. You know, Simon, I really love the concept of using a code word, and I use that a lot with my patients and families because suicidal thoughts, uh, self-injurious behavior are really difficult things to talk about. And sometimes those urges or those thoughts present in times where it's not ideal to talk about them. So having that code word between a child and adolescent and their parent can be really helpful, like and picking a word that isn't commonly used in conversation. So, you know, I text my mom and I say, you know, pineapple and mom knows she has to leave whatever the social situation is and we need to find a private spot to talk because I'm not feeling good and something's going on. And then we can, you know, implement an extra therapy session or, you know, go for a a walk to distract me or whatever's going on in that moment. But it allows for um, an adolescent or a child to exit a situation and have support more immediately. I think one of the important parts of safety planning is something called lethal means restriction. And this is something that we do anytime someone comes in with a risk of suicide um, in the emergency department. But in any setting, if you were to come across um, the realization that someone was having a suicidal thought and, you know, had any intent or plan, you would want to be engaging in this um, lethal means restriction at that time. Wondering if Dr. Pearson Simon could tell us a little bit more and maybe explain what that means and what kind of things do we advise parents and guardians to do? So lethal means restrictions is a very important part of a safety plan and essential in home going. And it's a conversation that really needs to happen and be documented as well. Lethal means restriction is a almost like a public health intervention. So it's like a high-level intervention to help reduce risk of someone attempting or completing suicide. And so it really is fancy language for saying putting away anything that a person can harm themselves with. And the most typical thing that we recommend restricting access to is medication, um, as it's commonly used by adolescents to um, harm themselves. Samuel, what does it mean to put away medications? Yeah, so that would be putting them in a lockbox, buying a security safe. So really ensuring that there's a high-level barrier for that child to access 
the medication. And the reason we do this is we talked a little bit about impulsivity. So we know that when an adolescent is experiencing suicidal thoughts, that they're not thinking straight, they're not using, they're not able to kind of maybe think concretely, they're not really remembering all the things, all the people that love them, they're just feeling that really intense emotional distress. And so you may open the medicine cabinet and there's something there. And in that moment, you think this is going to make it better. And so if we put it away, you know, that may give that adolescent a few minutes to be like, okay, wait a minute, you know, I have a safety plan, or let me call my mom, let me call my friend, let me text someone, let me send a message on Instagram, right? reaching out for help in some other way. And we know if we can delay a person, you know, five to 10 minutes when they're experiencing those suicidal thoughts, they may be able to then identify another coping skill that they can utilize. Um, so we really emphasize that, that if, if you have a child that's experienced any suicidal thoughts, to put away medication, to lock them in a safe, to ensure that you, if it's a safe that you have a, um, a code to that you change that often is, is you know, uh, kids are pretty smart and they kind of, oh, yeah, it's my mom's birthday is everything, you know. Um, so you want to be aware of things like that, too, to help um, ensure that there's no access to things that someone can harm themselves with. And when I think we talk about medication access, we're also thinking about those over-the-counter medications, not just the prescription meds that we may have in the household. So the acetaminophen, the ibuprofen, the Benadryl, those are the things that we're seeing present to our ER and in our ICUs. Yeah, even things like vitamins, um, all these things in excess are dangerous to us. So we want to reduce access. And often, you know, sometimes people are Googling and looking up what's harmful, but oftentimes it is like whatever I found. Um, and so wanting to also just be mindful if they spend a lot of time at grandma's house, you know, is can grandma also put away her medication um, just to help ensure that every environment that a youth is in is safe. That's a great point. And, you know, I, I can think of a few kids over the last several months where the family had done um, all of these things and then grandma came over to visit. And in grandma's purse is is grandma's blood pressure medication. And so just, you know, keeping in mind who's coming in and out of the home and, and what are what are they bringing with them is important. And also, you know, Older adolescents especially can get themselves to the grocery store or Target, and you, you don't have to present an ID to buy acetaminophen or ibuprofen. And so, you know, if, if the family and, and the risk assessment is at the level where we're very concerned that a child might be industrious and go out and, and get their own access to medication, then maybe that's something that the family needs to keep tabs on as well, is, you know, what are they doing with their money? Are we tracking you know, what they're purchasing? Or is 7-Eleven on the way to school? Things like that. Absolutely. A lot of scary situations our kids can get access to means to harm themselves. Um, often when we talk about lethal means restrictions, that means talking about firearms, which can be a really touchy and difficult subject. How can we as providers have this conversation in maybe a productive way? Yeah, you know, absolutely. That is a... a a charged topic for sure. I think, you know, when we're talking about an individual safety assessment with an individual child and the family in the emergency department, um, really all of those things just fall to the wayside. And what, what you can say to the family is when we are conducting a safety assessment, we need to consider access to anything that might be harmful. So are there any weapons in the home, any guns in the home? How are those stored? Does the child have any access to those? And, you know, these are not um, 
judgmental questions. They're simply safety assessment questions. And I think if it's presented in that way, it's usually a very productive conversation. And I think it's important as providers, you know, we all have our own perspectives on this question and we all um, have opinions on which lanes we belong in. Um, but an individual interaction with a patient is not the place to have that conversation. That's about what is the safety assessment for this child? And that's how I approach it. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, to consider this from a public health standpoint and the data that we do have surrounding the ways in which people commit suicide really shows us that anything that could be used in an impulsive way is our highest, you know, risk and should definitely be something that we're talking about with families. And, you know, if you look into data, oftentimes you will see that, um, unfortunately, guns are one of the fastest ways and one of the most lethal ways for people uh, if they are having, you know, suicidal thoughts. And, you know, we can't ignore the fact that this is something that is going to put people at risk. Um, and there are lots of programs, even in our own uh, emergency department here, psychiatric emergency department for, you know, helping people to have good gun safety in their house, you know, giving trigger locks, talking about this, you know, no one here is uh, trying to control other people's gun use, but we're all trying to support families in, in keeping their child safe and um, using common sense um, when thinking about means restriction. Yeah, just to build on, you know, what Dr. Burns and Dr. Pierce said, I think approaching it very non-judgmentally, I think oftentimes this is a political issue, right? But I think in the emergency room, really making it more of that personal issue that this is about, you know, your child's safety and wanting to work collaboratively around that. And guns can be really important, you know, people... Um, may need them for protection or for hunting, you know, that that's a family experience, but also recognizing that right now the adolescent is in crisis. And so we need to maybe modify the family system in some way to help provide that safety. And that modification is is restricting access to that firearm. So, you know, ideally th what we recommend is if the gun can be removed from the home, um, that that just kind of, there's no way that that can be accessed. Otherwise, if a family does, you know, need the gun in the home, then recommending that the gun be locked in a safe and then ammunition be locked separately in another safe. And again, that just provides that time that if someone does gain access to, say, the firearm, that it may take them another five minutes to access the ammunition. And in that time, they may start thinking in logically and start realizing, wait, do I actually want to do this? Um, because oftentimes we know that those attempts are lethal, um, but those individuals are experiencing impulsive suicidal thoughts, and they may not have been planning it, um, but that they gained access, and they just felt really hopeless in that moment. So we know if we limit access again, it's going to help that youth maybe utilize other resources to be safe. And so those are kind of the key things that if, you know, if you're not able to remove a gun, then, then ideally locking the gun and the ammunition separately, utilizing a trigger lock as well, being, again, mindful about the combination on the safe, knowing that kids can figure these things out. Um, so changing it often, being mindful of it. If you use a key, you know, keeping the key on your body, being aware of it, that, you know, if it's in the drawer, that the child hasn't accessed it, um, you know, all those things are important things to be aware of when there is a firearm in the home and a teenager is experiencing suicidal thoughts. When thinking a little bit more about lethal means restrictions, are there other things families and providers should think about limiting access to? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, sometimes I'll tell parents, you can't completely safety-proof your home. You know, kids can be industrious, as we've said. Um, but things like 
bleach and laundry detergent would be probably wise to at least put in a different location. And um, anything that can be a significant ligature risk, meaning something that a person could hang him or herself with. Um, you know, knives are tough because we all cook. And, you know, but thinking about that strategically for your own situation, I think is is something to consider. And maybe it's not wise to have a box cutter just lying around. Um, and then I, I often will tell parents to talk with their child about the fact that, you know, their safety is is paramount. And maybe I need to go through your room and you can stand there while I do it. And you'll see what I touch and what I don't touch, but I need to be sure that there's not a razor under your pillow. And that's okay. And sometimes as the provider, I will actually instruct that to the parent in front of the child and say to the kid, this is me, the doctor, making a doctor's order to mom and dad that they need to go search your room. And and so it's not on them, it's on me. And, and that's something that providers can easily do because it's not really all that impactful if the child is angry at me, but um, you know it matters if they're angry at their parents. Yeah, I can really appreciate that. I think, Dr. Pierce, we had a case earlier this month where the kid found some Tylenol that was in a duffel bag in the closet months ago and parents didn't know about. And if parents had you know checked the room, then she wouldn't have been in the ICU, but... Um, remembering just that kids remember these things and hide them. So we've talked a lot about safety assessments and what specific things um, families can do to reduce access to lethal means. When we think about this issue and, you know, some of the barriers, we, you know, we would be remiss to talk about, to not talk about the fact that this happens everywhere, and unfortunately, there are a lot of places where you know the setting doesn't have uh, access to specialty care in mental health um, or very limited access. Are there any tips that you can offer to non-mental health providers to help them do safety assessments and complete safety planning when they're not in a setting where they have access to specialty care? I think a key part of you know, if you're not a mental health professional and, and you're kind of in this situation, is remaining calm. And I think asking those probing questions and trying to get some more history and then really trying to make a connection with that person. There's a lot of research also that shows that if a person feels like there's someone that care cares for them or they're listening to them, that they're less likely to also attempt suicide. So if you can really just focus on making that connection and helping that person feel heard in that situation within that safety planning, I think that's really important and something that a non- psychiatric professional could also, you know, do. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, Saima mentioned earlier some assessment tools that are out there that are free that you can access. So safety is a good one. Using the IsPath warm mnemonic is a good one if you're feeling stuck just to help guide your interview with the patient and family. But I think, you know, if those alarm bells are sounding and you're in a setting where you don't have the intervention that you feel like you need, that's the time to escalate and get the patient to the place where they need to be, and that's the emergency room. And so whether that's, you know, you have the parents drive them to the closest ER, or it's at the point where you really feel like, gosh, this kid might actually jump out of the car on the way there, then you call 911. Um, and, and it's okay to escalate when you need to do that. That's what those services are there for. I think it's really important to just even think about what, you know, some of the research shows, which is that a large majority of people who have had a suicide attempt actually had an interaction with a frontline provider at some point relatively recent before they had the actual suicide attempt. So 
those touch points are really important and asking these questions and when you're doing your examination, you know, building that confidence so that you can start asking about suicidal ideation to people that you're coming in contact with um, in the emergency department, in the in the office, um, you know, taking advantage of those moments uh, because it can be a huge piece for preventing suicide. Now, Saima, you do a lot of safety assessments. How do you recommend documenting that so the rest of the care team knows what's going on and, you know, if they present again, somebody else knows what the plan was? Documentation is essential in healthcare. So I think the key things that you would want to ensure that you document is the conversation. You know, what did the patient say about suicidal thoughts? You know, what were the what were they worried about? How did you problem solve around those things? And then documenting the concrete things that you did review, that you did talk through, you know, the warning signs that they had, you reviewed the coping skills, maybe you practice them together so that they, you know, feel confident that they could do that at home. Um, that you reviewed the crisis resources, you know, maybe said, hey, I saved these in my phone so that way, you know, it's already programmed. You don't have to Google it. There's also um, a crisis text line available. So thinking about things that an adolescent may be more likely to utilize. You know, I don't think many people use phone calls anymore. So so connecting the resource so that it may align with them a little bit better. Um, if there's any apps, you know, too, that may support the patient talking about those. And then also documenting that you discuss lethal means restriction with um, both the adolescent and their family. I think that's really important as well. And then creating a physical safety plan. So actually writing things down or having the adolescent write them down um, and then reviewing those together and putting that into the medical record as well so that it can be accessed in the future. You know, sometimes if I see an adolescent, you know, a month or two later, they're having suicidal thoughts, I may print out the previous one and I say, okay, what can we add to this um, to help it be more comprehensive and to help better meet your needs? Um, So that way they don't also feel like they're having to recreate the wheel every time, but we are working collaboratively to address their risk. I think that's great. I think writing the plan down making sure everybody who's involved, whether it's the family, the adolescent, and the care team, um, so that we are all on the same page in that moment. Um, I also have come across a lot of teens who are like, oh, yeah, I wrote it down. I don't know where I put it. Like, who knows? There are some great apps out there, and I don't want to, like, advertise one app, but the one that I use a lot is called My3 um, Safety Assessment, I think it is, and um, it is just something they download to their phone. It's free. They, you know, three coping skills, three warning signs, three people who can support me, um, and then it's right in that app. They pull it up. They program their support people's phone numbers in it, um, the crisis support line, so they can make a phone call right from the app. And um, it's discreet. Like it's a nonspecific icon on their phone. Their friends don't need to know when they grab their phone, those types of things. And it's always with them because let's be honest, their phone's always with them. I think the other piece that you mentioned, uh, Dr. Swiner, is the engagement of the care team. So I often tell families, you know, after we work on a safety plan in the emergency room is share this with your therapist. You know, they need to see this too so that they can work with you and they can kind of identify what those warning signs are and hopefully help reduce these suicidal thoughts so that you don't have to go to the ER again. Um, because I will, I feel like a lot of the kids that we see, their therapists are unaware that they're having these suicidal thoughts. And it's really hard for kids to share that because they almost sometimes feel like they're going to disappoint you know, their therapist, but really encouraging them to be open. They often also feel that way about their parents. Um, they're worried they're going to disappoint them or that they're going to add another thing that their parents are going to worry about. And so I often reassure, you know, children and teens that their parents are going to worry regardless. You know, that's what a parent does. And so if we can have open communication, then their parents are actually going to worry less because 
I know I tend to think like worst case scenario. Um, and so that's sometimes, you know, if a parent has a child with suicidal thoughts, that's what they're going to think. They're going to think every time it's a crisis, we need to go to the ER. But if we're having conversations about this, then we don't have to go to the ER because we've already, we kind of know and we have a plan in place and we know what to do to help support one another. I'd like to add something, if I can, about this. I don't know what else to call this other than a phenomenon that I've just been seeing over the last decade, and we've we've all talked about this, and that's cell phones and social media. And increasingly, we see kids who attempt suicide, and the way that their attempt is discovered is that while they were doing it, they posted on social media or they texted a friend. And then the friend reached out to the family or the police. And a lot of times kids, especially if they are really intending to die, will make their attempt late at night. Uh, The family's asleep. And I I can think of a case eight or nine years ago now that I will never forget. And I'll just share briefly. um, This young man had broken up with his girlfriend the day before this happened and was just feeling in despair. He went into the bathroom, took... uh, all of his brother's seizure medication. And he texted his ex-girlfriend as he did it and said goodbye. And she, now the the ex, was so concerned that she tried to call his parents and their phones were off. And so she woke up her dad and said, you have to drive me to his house. And they went and they banged on the door until the parents woke up. And I just am very sure that if that hadn't happened, that that young man would have died. And I remember sitting with his parents in the ICU, and his mom was just rocking back and forth. And the only thing she could say was, what if she hadn't come over? And I just, you know, you think about that, and two things come to mind. One is the kid on the other end of the phone who is getting this information and maybe at a very young age is trying to decide, what do I do with this? And making sure that we talk to our kids about How do you reach out if you're concerned that your friend or someone you care about is maybe actually doing what they say they're doing? Because people will post things that they don't mean all the time, but you don't want to miss it. And then the other thing that this has made me do is talk to parents sometimes about making sure that their kids' closest friends have the parent's phone number. And they don't even have to tell their kid necessarily. But if you are really, really worried that your child is going to act on suicide, then their best friend should know how to reach you because it's going to be 2 a.m. and you, you know probably should keep your ringer on um, because it, it's this is a way that kids are reaching out and it, it's a way that we can intervene. So just wanted to put that out there. I think that's also you know an important thing for parents to reflect on is that their teenagers may be the one that someone's coming to to say they're suicidal and so kind of checking in about friends and about you know how they're doing um, because this isn't uncommon. You know I think most of the you know, kids that we see in the emergency rooms, oftentimes their parents were informed by a friend um, or they posted on social media and someone kind of contacted the family. And so, you know, what can you do to support your child as well if they're maybe that person in the group that's the listener um, and, and for them to feel comfortable coming to you too to say, hey, I'm worried about a friend. Can you reach out to their family or can we do something to support them? Yeah. And I think that goes to also say that as a parent, having the phone numbers of your kid's friends, parents. So if something does come up, whether it's something minor or something very serious like this, they can be reached and you can help keep the community safe. Okay, so we've discussed a lot of intimate details about safety assessments, safety planning. Any final thoughts from anybody at the table right now? 
I think we've kind of highlighted it and touched on it a little bit, but I think just bringing back up the topic of privacy and confidentiality, and especially when there's someone in the emergency room that's suicidal, you are 100% able to break confidentiality in that situation, especially if, if you're not pursuing psychiatric admission. You know, if, if you're pursuing psychiatric admission and a person really doesn't want a family member contacted, you are pursuing an intervention that's going to really ensure their safety, right? They're going to go to a, a setting where they won't have access to things to harm themselves. It's going to be a locked unit. They're going to receive mental health treatment. And in that setting, that contact with family can be pursued. Um, but if you are in an emergency room and, and you're thinking about discharging someone who's had suicidal thoughts, you really want to be talking to a family member, a friend, someone that can follow through and help support um, the adolescent with what's going on. So with adolescents, it's oftentimes like bright family. So being able to talk directly with them, um, saying, hey, can you lock up the lethal means? You got to get a, an appointment with their therapist, um, looking at partial hospitalization program, things like that, checking in regularly with you know their child about suicidal thoughts. And for young adults, I think oftentimes engaging that family member, if they're a young adult that's at college, can you talk to a friend that's nearby, the RA, you know, some other support system, um, because we can't mandate for an adult, like, you know, that someone go through their room and take out all the medication, but, you know, maybe that friend can support them and say, hey, do you mind giving me the meds for, you know, a week while we get you in, into some treatment? Or the friend can routinely text and just check in and see how things are going um, because those those supports in the community are really important to activate. And if someone is really anxious about having a support person contacted, that that's kind of a red flag too um, because what are they going to do if those thoughts worsen and they're at home and they're alone? And so if there's not that support piece, I think that's really a time to escalate and to think about what else do we need to do to help the person be safe. Thank you, Dr. Pierce and Saima, for joining us and talking about this today. I wanted to provide to all our viewers some of those crisis support numbers. So for anybody who's experiencing suicidal ideations or contemplating suicide, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255 or 800-273-TALK. And you can also text the word CONNECT to 741741. And to nurses, social workers, and physicians, you can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. Thank you for our audience for tuning in this week, and we will see you next time.